Will Williman, Methodist pastor and campus pastor of Duke University, was once asked what he missed about academia after he left the university and went to work in the church, because he'd seen both. His answer recorded in his memoir, Accidental Preacher, was unusually honest. I miss the Office of Admissions, he answered, which ensured that I would not, never be forced to work with anyone unlike me. Sure, we had cultural and racial differences, but all of us shared the same gift for manipulating the American educational system for our own personal advancement. It was wonderful. No nasty disagreements among us. Church, on the other hand, is notoriously non-selective. Jesus prohibits churches from having admissions committees. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose with whom to go to church. Pastors are forced to work with anybody Jesus drags in the door. <laughs> Having taught on a college campus myself for two years before coming to Minnesota, I can relate. Thanks to our therapeutic culture, most of us today recognize the gravitational pull of affinity bias our tendency to gravitate towards people like us in everything from where we choose to buy a home to where we shop for groceries. Researchers have even found now this bias in physical attraction, and to a large extent, this makes sense. But might there be times in which this can be limiting, harmful, or even in opposition to the kind of community we want to create? It's a question worth asking today as we come to a passage that announces good news for all. And while it comes to us in a statement, I'm asking it as a question. Good news for all? Is it actually a good thing there's no admission requirements for coming into God's family other than saying yes to Jesus? Because Williman is right. Churches don't get admissions committees. Pastors and churches must welcome anyone who Jesus brings through our doors. And the people in our passage today really struggled with that concept. But Jesus' message to them in the midst of that struggle is clear and perhaps illuminating to us as we seek to be church today. Last week, we started a new series on a portion of the book of Luke, Luke chapters 4 through 9. We're focusing just on those chapters because Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, and we only have so many weeks leading up to Easter, and this is a natural section within the book. I had the joy last week of introducing you to my new preacher's crush, Luke. Luke is the writer of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts in the New Testament, therefore the most prolific writer of the New Testament. He's a gifted storyteller. He's a stellar interviewer. He's a detail-oriented historian. He's a respected physician in his day, and he's a softy. He's got a sharp mind, but a tender heart. He, is, he has a gentle and inclusive nature. I highlighted three themes I want us to see in this biography of Jesus. One, the claim in this book that Jesus is the only hope of the world is credible. There is good reason for smart people to find Jesus' message compelling. Two, the stories of these people are incredible. Real life change happens that is quite moving and hopeful for us. And this third, the subtitle of Luke's book, This Gospel Could Be, the gospel for all. 
because Luke is the most inclusive of all the gospel writers, probably because he's the only non-Jewish writer of the New Testament himself. So today, we're looking at an event Luke selects to describe Jesus' official launch of his ministry and teaching. And the first part might be familiar to you. It's fine. It's the second part that's pretty unexpected, and it's this part that I think we need to hear in order to understand Jesus' message. I'm going to deal with both of them, but putting it out there right now. Now, this is a lengthy passage, so I'm going to break it up into two sections. The message Jesus shares in chapter 4, verses 14 to 22, and then the response of the people in verses 23 to 30. And with each section, we're going to walk through the passage itself, And then we're going to reflect on what it means for us. So first, Jesus' message in Luke 4, 14 to 22. For this part, I'm going to read a few verses, make comments along the way, and then read the rest of the passage. Are you with me? Okay. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Let me set the context here. Jesus has just launched his formal teaching and healing ministry in the town of Capernaum, which is just 20 miles from his hometown, Nazareth, both of which are in the region of Galilee. That's why it says Galilee in the beginning. And because he's a rising star and attracting attention by healing people, word got out. You can almost hear the people of Capernaum cry, Lin-Manuel Miranda style, let's get this guy in front of a crowd. Sure enough, when Nazareth, the next town over, hears of Jesus' growing reputation and that he's coming to town, they are eager to hear from him. It's common practice for rabbis to be invited to speak in the synagogue for a portion of the Sabbath service, and Jesus, noted speaker he's becoming, is given such an opportunity. But there's not just a lot of anticipation because Jesus is gaining popularity and his reputation precedes him. It's also because he's a hometown boy. You may recall from just celebrating Christmas, he was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth, a small town nearby. So the locals are eager to hear what he has to say. As was customary, verse 16, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the passage he wants to emphasize, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. On another occasion, I would preach a sermon just on these few verses because they are such a beautiful summary of who God is and what his mission is in the world. But I have done that recently at the Lake Herrett Band Show this past summer. And so for the sake of this series, I'm going to highlight the main point, which is this. Contrary to what you may think, contrary to what churches may say, God is not out to get us or to harm us or to watch us make a mess of things or to judge us from his high horse in heaven. God is not disinterested in us or distant or dissatisfied with us. 
God as revealed in and through the person of Jesus Christ is all about healing and hope and humanity. God loves us. He wants what is best for us. God is on the side of humanity. He is pro-human beings. He is pro-our flourishing. His whole purpose in coming to earth was to bring freedom to those suffering under bondage, to attitudes and behaviors and burdens and addictions. Know anybody like that? To show the way for those confused, blinded, literally and metaphorically. Know anybody looking for meaning or hope or purpose in life? And to bring justice to those suffering under oppression from others, greed or corruption. Know any countries that could benefit from that? And he offers this to whom? The really good people who seem to have their lives together. The people who go to church. Those who can afford his fees. Those with the social capital who can put in a good word for him. No, no. Good news to the poor. The meaning here includes but is not limited to those with limited financial resources. It's for those who can't pay. It's for those who aren't seen as valuable by society, those who can't pull any strings to make it happen, those who feel like they have nothing to give. Ultimately, it's anybody who recognizes their need for God and is open to receiving what he has to offer. That's a really low admissions requirement. That's a really wide invitation. Let me pause just a moment to say if any of this sounds appealing to you, to be released from what you feel in bondage to, to be shown clear direction and purpose and meaning in life, to foster lives free from oppression, then I want to encourage you to keep getting to know this, Jesus. This is just his first sermon. You should hear the rest. And I encourage you to not just listen to what he says, but watch how he lived. Look at what he did. Because he makes good on these claims. The rest of this chapter, as we'll see next week when David Clark preaches, Luke is intentional about showing how Jesus does just this. By setting people free from evil spirits and healing many sick people. I want to encourage you to read the entire book of Luke. I like the New International Translation. The message is a helpful paraphrase that's really readable, puts it in everyday language. We've got Bibles in the lobby. Please feel free to take one. Because as one writer says, the good news is an announcement and an invitation. Jesus is declaring this is the new reality. And in that declaration, he's issuing an invitation. You can have this kind of life if you want it. You can experience freedom, healing, clarity of purpose. And this is why we exist as a church. So if you're curious or interested, you're in the right place. We want to help you take the next step on your spiritual journey wherever you are. Now, these phrases alone are powerful enough in and of themselves but there's even more going on here. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 and 58 in the Old Testament, which are both passages that described what the long-awaited Messiah would be like. And all Jewish people in the first century, including those in the Nazareth synagogue that day, 
knew that these verses would describe, were describing what would happen on the future day when God's chosen one would come to earth and finally set the world right again. This was a day when God would rule the world and establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness and true peace. Now, it's not really that big a deal that Jesus taps into their longing for a savior. What is a big deal is what happens afterward. Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then in the mic drop moment, he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, he doesn't mean in this exact moment, everything is done and fulfilled. He means this process has begun in me. And recalling what had happened the next town over, they seem intrigued, at least open. There's some evidence to consider this. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. You can hear the astonishment, can't you? Hey, isn't this Joey's boy from the corner shop? Where'd he learn how to teach like that? And you can hear some skepticism, perhaps particularly from the unusual circumstances around Jesus' birth. Remember, Joseph's fiance is found pregnant before the wedding. Remember that whole thing? Is he really Joseph's son? Regardless, at this point, they're still amazed at his words. This is going well. And frankly, if I were Jesus, I would have stopped right there. Don't throw away your shot, Jesus. Call it a day. You've garnered support in your hometown. Just quit while you're ahead. But he doesn't. In fact, he takes the conversation in such a different direction, the crowd goes from admiration to murderous mob. Listen to what Jesus continues to say and how the crowd responds. This is a Jesus set on mission, not swayed by the opinions, positive or negative, of others. Luke 4, 23 to 30. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah, one sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, but not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Intense, right? Here's a picture of Nazareth. It was set on the hill country in the midst of plenty of jagged rocks and cliffs. We have sources later that suggest stoning in the first century began by throwing the criminal off the cliff and then hurling large rocks the size of their head on them below. 
executions weren't permitted on the Sabbath. So this crowd is unusually angered. They're triggered. It's not entirely clear whether whether God miraculously spared Jesus' life at this point or whether Jesus had such commanding presence, i.e. the power of the Holy Spirit, that they were afraid of him and let him pass through the crowd. Either way, it was not yet his time to die. That will come later at the end of the book when they crucify him. And many scholars believe Luke is intentional about placing this story here as Jesus' ministry is launched because it serves as a powerful summary of his message but is also illustrative of how people respond to Jesus and how specifically, as John 1:12 says, his own received him not. Talk about foreshadowing. Just as the people of Nazareth are incited to kill him, so too will the Jewish people crucify him by the end of the book. Now, what is it that makes them so angry? What is it that causes them to go from admiration to fury? It starts innocent enough. In verse 23, Jesus acknowledges they want signs, evidence of his claim that he's God's Messiah, doing your hometown what we heard you did over there in Capernaum. They want special treatment. Legacy admission. If Capernaum got all kinds of special experiences, how much more should we? After all, this is where Jesus got his start. I couldn't help as I was preparing this, think about the J-Lo song for any J-Lo fans out there. I'm still Jenny from the block. Okay, this is still Jesus from the block. You made it big, Jesus. Don't forget where you came from. Many of you know that beloved cartoonist and creator of the Charlie Brown and Peanuts gang, uh, Charles Schultz was born here in Minneapolis, not far from this building, actually, and then was raised in St. Paul. Now, imagine if he were still living today, and he returned to Minneapolis after receiving tons of awards, earning lots of money. He's come to his hometown. People are eager to hear what he has to say. Maybe he'll raise funds for arts and public schools. Maybe he'll help Minneapolis and St. Paul deal with all of our challenges. Instead, he comes and he says, just because I'm from the Twin Cities, don't expect to get special treatment. In fact, I've decided to give all my funding to Minnetonka or Chaska or Wyzetta. That would feel like a slap in the face. This is similar to what Jesus says here. And then he takes it a step further. A prophet is without honor in his own hometown. This is like our phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. (laughs) The more you know someone, the less likely you think they're truly special because they're so familiar. And then he gives two examples in verses 25 to 27 of people during the time of Elijah and Elisha's ministry, both prophets of Israel preceding Jesus' ministry, And it's these two examples that put the listeners over the edge. They are both examples of God saving non-Israelites, non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And more troubling, saving the Gentiles instead of the Israelites. The first example, the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. This is one of my favorite Old Testament stories. You can read it in 1 Kings 17. 7 to 24, God miraculously provides oil and flour for a poor widow and her son during a three and a half year period of famine and drought. 
Elijah even brings the son back to life at one point after he dies. But Jesus' point in this story is that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, but to the widow in the region of Sidon. Jesus is using shock therapy here, okay? He's saying God could have saved and helped Israelites, but he didn't. Instead, he helped a widow in Zarephath, Sidon. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, but it's a Philistine city. And even if you don't know much about the Bible, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. David, the little young shepherd boy who kills, the, kills Goliath with a stone. David is from Israel, and Goliath is a Philistine. They are one of Israel's oldest and greatest enemies. Why would Elijah help someone there instead of helping the people of Israel, the chosen? That's offensive. The second example, the cleansing or healing of Naaman, the Syrian, from leprosy is in verse 27, and it makes the same point. This is a crazy story. <laughs> uh, it's an odd story, and it has a harsh word for church leaders trying to pocket money off God's work. You can read it in 2 Kings 5, 1 to 19. To be clear, there are other people in Israel suffering from leprosy at the time. But instead of showing preference to them, God heals Naaman, the commander general of the army of Syria, another one of Israel's greatest enemies. What is God doing helping him? Isn't he supposed to be just Israel's genie in a bottle and come to their aid when they're in trouble? But Jesus' point is that the people of Israel didn't have the faith to receive what he was offering, so he extended it to others. Cast the net wide, even to Israel's enemies. And now we begin to see why this is so triggering. If we were Ukrainian, it would be like Jesus saying, I can't do much here because of your lack of faith, but there are people in Russia who are receiving my help right now. If we were Palestinians, it would be like Jesus saying, Israelis are being saved and helped. If we were Israeli, it would be like saying, Palestinians can be recipients of God's gift of life. Talk about the rubber meeting the road. I get why they're so angry. And this is the heart of the matter. Jesus is not interested in us merely being open to the idea of equity and inclusion for all. He's not interested in us believing theoretically in a gospel for all or good news for the poor. He's interested in us believing it actually, where the rubber meets the road, where our deepest prejudices are challenged. Good news for the poor sounds great, till you realize it might not necessarily mean good news for the rich. Good news for the powerless or those on the outside or those who aren't normally considered favored is really good news if you're one of those people. But if you're not, if you're the one in power, that could potentially be threatening. That could upset the system. That might threaten your own level of power or wealth. Jesus' radical message of good news for all confronts our prejudices of the people we think are deserving, of people we may not like. And this will necessitate a change on our part. It will include a group so wide, we aren't sure we want them in. In theory, I'm all for the gospel of all, until it includes them. I love how one commentator put it. What is thus good news for me 
whoever I may be, is good news equally for me to pass on to my neighbor, whoever he may be. If Jesus' message of hope and life is truly available to all, then that's going to include some people who aren't from our part of town, who don't share our background, who don't speak our language, whose religion I don't understand, who for whatever reason might make me feel uncomfortable. But if Jesus really is the Savior of all people, then I am welcome and invited, and so are they. In a polarized, divided world of us versus them, Jesus extends the gospel for them. And that includes even that annoying, nosy neighbor, even your former coworker, even your ex. It includes that group of people you don't like and have strong prejudice against Republicans, Democrats, Somalis, immigrants, people of Jewish faith, people of Muslim faith, politicians, the Sackler family, people living in southwest Minneapolis, and people living in Minnetonka, Chaska, Wyzetta. Now, that does not mean we overlook immorality or permit abusive or toxic behavior. You don't need to be BFFs with these folks or be in the same room alone with them or refrain from speaking out against injustice. In fact, the opposite is true. Genuine faith in Jesus will eventually lead to life change. A real encounter with the person of Jesus will eventually cause us to examine all kinds of behaviors, attitudes, and desires. We're not to condone or permit bad behavior, but we must be open to people experiencing the hope and healing Jesus offers. I'll share a personal example here, though I'll keep the details to a minimum. A number of years ago, there was an individual we interacted with through our kids' school and sports teams, and I will just say, I did not like him. I thought he was self-centered, rude, mean, hard on the kids, had a temper. When our joint activity ended, I would have been thrilled if I never saw him again the rest of my life. Some years later, life circumstances changed for both of us, and our paths began crossing again, like a lot. And I was not happy about this initially. I know I'm supposed to be open to all people coming to know God, but I felt like, really? Must I? Him? Andy and I felt convicted to pray for him, and so we did regularly. Long story short, the more Andy and I interacted with this man, the more we started seeing change in him. And I began to see interest on his part of matters of faith where he had been hardened and um, not just uh, doubtful, but vicious about Christians. He was softening. I began to see talents and skills in him I had never seen before. I was softening. I actually started enjoying conversations with him in spite of myself. <laughs> he was changing and growing, and so was I. Now, the story is still unfolding, but suffice it to say, the gospel for all includes even him. And I never thought I would have been okay with that, but now I can rejoice in that. Now, that's an easier story to tell because I've come around in my view of this person. But if the gospel is really good news for all, then it's worth asking, 
Where are we cautious, hesitant, maybe even resistant to the message of Jesus and his life-changing impact making a difference? Who are the people, individuals, or groups of people who come to mind that we are not as eager for this good news to find? And if we aren't feeling that push or nudge, is it possible we aren't opening the door wide enough for all to come in? Perhaps freeing captives from their chains and giving sight to the blind and releasing those in bondage is not only what other people need, it's something we need as well. City Church, Jesus announces good news for all. And if we really believe that, it will push against some of our own prejudices. And those are not easily released. Good news for all, for the undeserving, the ineligible, even them. Are we really prepared to follow a God like that? Let's pray. Whew, that's a tough message. I would not want to preach this message, but you did, and it's Luke has faithfully recorded it for us, and we are so wedded to following what your word says. And if we're honest, this is good news for all, Lord, because it includes us. Would you soften our hearts? Would you help those of us who feel poor, who want in on this, who want freedom, hope, clarity, healing. Would you show us what it means for us and for those of us who feel rich, soften our hearts to warmly embrace this message of good news for all. For Jesus' sake, amen.